First Seeds benefit the Center for Informed Food Choices and the National Radio Project, producers of Making Contact. This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is March the 30th, 2004. And I got a call this morning. Someone said, are you going to do an obituary of Alistair Cook? I said, well, I did not know Alistair Cook very well. I would rather talk about Peter Ustinov. We all loved Alistair Cook, of course. 95 years is a long time. Actually, Peter Ustinov would be, uh, what's the word, uh, the person that I would like to have had dinner with, a dear, dear man, one of my favorite performers, as he was in his early 80s. He was not in very good health the last couple of years. Uh, I identified he was weary and overweight, but for 30 years he's done the humanitarian work at the UN, you know, working for Children's Welfare, UNICEF, and most important, he was a major wit, wry and dry, actually, <laughs> a little wicked, Peter was. He's a sort of actor who doesn't need to do anything except show up, you know, maybe wink a few times. What was interesting about the obituaries on the major corporate media this week was uh, the statement that Peter Ustinov uh, was of German-Russian parentage. Uh, I find that most folks think of him as British. In fact, Sir Peter Ustinov uh, uh, was a man of color. His grandmother, I believe, yes, it's his grandmother, was an Ethiopian woman. He often mentioned this in interviews that he had uh, African heritage. I always think it's interesting how many of the so-called white folks are assumed to be um, altogether European. Many of us only look that way. Uh, identity politics is quite bizarre. Uh, it's mostly symbolism, uh, especially well here in the United States. We have this hardening of the categories. I remember... Oh, years and years and years ago, late 60s, I remember we had something in the Oakland School called the Black is Beautiful movement, and suddenly uh, everyone, you know, stopped straightening their hair, and it seemed <laughs> that there were no white folks left at all. Color 
is, of course, the usual simplistic indicator. And then people start throwing around the word race. Now, race is, as we know, a completely nebulous notion. Uh, Toni Morrison says it's, uh, what is it, it's just a metaphor now. Uh, nationality is also quite confusing. You know how that is. Um, people who don't look European are often assumed um, to be uh, aliens. But globalization is changing things. It really, truly is. Uh, something is stirring all around the world, and uh, there are always class markers. We know all about that. Uh, but more and more, the class marker has something to do with, oh, language, um, education, that sort of thing, you know. Uh, and, of course, the biggest marker of all is wealth. Uh, I remember Peter Ustinov, he played, he always played clever foxy types. Once he played that, that, um, uh, clever manipulative servant in an old, old Hollywood picture. What was that picture? The Egyptian loved it. Uh, he had a jewel that he used for a false eye. You know, it was behind his eye patch and he had to sell the jewel. Um, he shrugged and did it because he needed to save the child, and yes, he gave them the jewel and got the kid on the boat, and off they went. I always think of him as a charming trickster, uh, a philosophical con man, expedient to a fault. Actually, uh, he was a scholar and uh, uh, an artist late in life. He was employed on public television uh, as an educator and historian, he uh, had a hard time doing all that traveling, but uh, there was one series, wonderful, wonderful stuff, uh, and I thought, how wasteful it is, our entertainment industry. Uh, uh, Peter Ustinov, for decades and decades, could have been a, a teacher, an educator, with all that charm and, and uh, humor. He could have wandered the world and told us about the lives of people everywhere. Orson Welles uh, told us years and years ago all about this potential, the potential of film. He said it was the greatest educational tool in the history of man. We could transform the world, bring history and culture alive. Imagine a world in which, uh, just think about it, think about it. All our best talents, all these charming folks, could devote themselves to prime-time television. Yes, uh, they could all be on mass media, oh, say, from 3 o'clock in the afternoon when the kids come home from school until bedtime. And uh, we could present them with uh, studies of individuals, clans, tribes, show them the infrastructure of nations and... Uh, you know, uh, show them how families uh, operate in hundreds of different countries. And let, think of the material, it's inexhaustible. And then think of what's on that boob tube. Mm, <laughs> reality TV, they call it, yes. And think what would happen if we had truly interactive communication. It's possible now, you know. The kids could come home from school sit down in front of the internet, the television set, and talk to other students in countries all over the world. 
classes of students could work together, just the click of a mouse. It can happen, you know, hold fast to the thought. <laughs> and then remember why it doesn't happen, yes. Who, yes, who's trying to maintain the status quo? Uh, oh, it's so wearying to think of, what is that? Uh, the failures, the failures of uh, our time. I need to celebrate this time of the year just because it's April, I guess. I need to take my Emily Dickinson out under the trees and just... Read the poets and think what it would be like. Last night I was watching a little bit of a oh, Turner Classics film. It was called Shanghai Gesture. And it was a, a very, very, very generic old picture um, with John Houston. But it had Victor Mature, you remember old Victor Mature, quoting at length from Omar Khayyam. And I thought, well, now, imagine that being on primetime television. In today's world, that was the 1930s. Let's see, that picture had John Houston and uh, Jean Tierney, age 20, and uh, Una Monson, the woman who played Belle Star in Gone with the Wind. She plays this wicked, wicked, wicked Asian woman. Uh, <laughs> what, what pictures they had in those days, yes, uh, was preceded by Shanghai Express with Marlene Dietrich and Anna May Wong, one of my great heroes I have always worshipped. Anna May Wong. There's a couple new biographies about her uh, film star from that era. I hope to get one of them and um, read bits of it to you here on KPFA. Uh, always there were these exceptional um, people, ethnic exotics they were in those days uh anyway i need to just sit back and look at the art that surrounds us and the the april trees i've got a, a bunch of trees shading my back balcony and the air is like wine i just need to turn off all this political uh angst all this stuff you know the chattering classes uh all that anguish tormenting those of us who are obsessed with social justice and that sort of thing. Uh, the beat goes on and history uh, never changes much. And Richard Clark is probably a big plus. God bless him. I see that in the Independent in the United Kingdom, uh, March 22nd, even uh, Jimmy Carter has come out and said that, you know, creating a Pax Americana is a bad idea. Uh, it's building up, folks. It's building up all sorts of people, Hans Blix, everyone. Uh, finally, finally, when it's too late, telling us that uh, the Bush boys had it all wrong, that they made about the worst call in American history. Uh, the battle for men's minds continues. Um and there is hope, hope for a regime change, yes. But, oh, do I need to think about the other things. Uh, I remember a line from Edna St. Vincent Millay back in the 1930s. She writes to her lover, I will love you always, no matter what party is in power. History takes time, folks, and we have to let these things soak for a decade or two. 
always nice to remember that we can go to the seashore and that we can look at the blue eyes and think about the romantic fools we know and all the rest of that perennial stuff. Uh, there's a stern ecologist friend of mine. He reminded me that even those eternal verities, the things that I care the most about, the timeless truths, he said, even those things are in jeopardy because of today's political climate. And that is true enough. Uh, once, you know, a war could only destroy one generation. Now it is possible to destroy the future, uh, to destroy the air and the land and the sea, the world that uh, the ancients and the poets sing about. Yep, sometimes I feel that even our human nature is up for grabs, somehow changing. I don't believe it. I don't think it's really happening, but technocracy does seem to be altering some of the modes of behavior, modes of thought. You know, uh, human nature has always been a constant through the centuries, no matter what, uh, plague, famine, war, holocaust, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Still, you know, we survive by the skin of our teeth, our humanity reemerges, new generation, all that rebirthing stuff. Sunday night, um, I watched a three-hour silent film, Intolerance. And I thought about it. I tried to put myself back into the mindset of 1916 when that film was first released. It's, of course, an epic by D.W. Griffith. I have an essay on D.W. Griffith. I hope I have time to read some of it to you. I wrote it years ago. It's in a book of mine called Mind Over Media. You remember D.W. Griffith, that old Victorian racist, the one with the Madonna horror complex? Intolerance is truly his masterpiece. Uh, not that we forgive him for birth of a nation, that's another story, but intolerance was his effort to do a great historical collage showing how man's inhumanity to man is, you know, consistent through the ages. And, of course, man's inhumanity to woman, in particular, never quits. Uh, uh, D.W. Griffith tried to weave four stories together. Uh, I think it's a bit jerky myself, but he wanted to illustrate the ways in which each age, each historical period and country nation practices its own form of intolerance. Basically, it's the same the same human quality, but uh, the manifestations, of course, change. The costumes change. Uh, it's like, you know, the way, the way gods and um, the divine evolves to suit each age, to suit the men who believe in specific gods. Uh, I think of that wonderful film Mephisto, in which we are shown the kind of... Uh, Oh, the kind of fellow who stuck around in Hitler's Germany. <laughs> he turns Shakespeare's Hamlet into a Wagnerian epic. Yes, we suit the arts and the gods and the images to the uh, climate of our time. Now, intolerance takes the four storylines and mixes them up, so you get a sense of history. They have a modern storyline. Uh, of course, virtue under assault. 
a, a uh, an innocent girl, D.W. Griffith, uh, idolized virgins and motherhood, that sort of thing. He always used the immortal actress Lillian Gish. In this film, in Intolerance, she is the eternal mother rocking the eternal cradle of life. I don't believe Lillian Gish ever married. She actually had too much trouble taking care of D.W. Griffith. She and her sister Dorothy uh, and all of his pictures. <laughs> the other stories in Intolerance are set, well, one is set in 16th century France, the Huguenot and Catholic Wars, the horrible bloodshed. Uh, then there's Babylon in the 6th century B.C. Those are the most exotic sequences. Wow, that stuff was terrific. And then um, he has a part of the story take place in Jerusalem, the time of Christ. I wonder what Mel Gibson would make of uh, D.W. Griffith's Jesus. Uh, strictly a love-thy-neighbor Victorian type. Um, let him who is without sin among you throw the first stone, that sort of thing. Jesus, in Victorian times, was... Well, he was kind of a budding humanitarian. Uh, he evolved a little later into a reformer. And then in my day, he even became a hippie love child. You remember Jesus Christ Superstar. Uh, anything to, um, you know, fit the punishment to the crime. Mel Gibson is riding today's zeitgeist, the spirit of our age, of the moment, uh, Returning to a warrior god, an avenging Christ, uh, feels more like Old Testament than New. Uh, yes, scourging, violence, suffering, blood, and myth. What I liked about D.W. Griffith's intolerance was, uh, well, first place, his sense of fun. Uh, he advocates the goddess Ishtar. It's a fantastic fun thing. It's basically, um, Oh, what would you call that? Uh, <laughs> a lot of French postcards. Yes, pagan princesses, dancing girls, bursting out all over the screen. Temple prostitutes are filmed in steamy poses. Uh, ah, Constance Talmadge plays a character called the Mountain Girl in the Babylonian story. She's terrific. A eh? uh, modern feminist, certainly. Her brother drags her off to the marriage market. He wants to find a husband who can control her. And she carries on so so much. She's so outrageous that none of the men in the market will buy her. So the prince, the Babylonian prince, uh, sympathizes with her, and he gives her freedom to marry or not as she pleases. Yes, he writes her out a little stone tablet. She gets a ticket, ticket to ride. That's one feminist fantasy. Uh, now, that sort of thing was very popular in 1916. I think back, my parents would have been, both of them would have been 14 years old in 1916. They met when they were each 15 years old, so they might have gone to this film together. Uh, my mother was that sort of teenager. Um, Athletic types, you know, Artemis, uh, the Diana archetype, the the girl who was uh, so athletic that the guy had to race after her, you know, and catch her. The late Catherine Hepburn, 
personified this archetype, uh, well, for most of the 20th century, I was surprised that so little attention was paid when Catherine Hepburn died this past year. Not much in the way of obituaries for a woman that seemed to me to personify uh, half a century of Hollywood films. Julia Roberts mentioned Catherine Hepburn's name at the Academy Awards, but she told a rather out-of-date story. Well, it seemed out of place, at least, passé. Julia Roberts said that, well, Kate Hepburn was a pioneer in Hollywood, and she always wore pants and so on. And so when Kate was interviewed by uh, Barbara Walters, Walters asked if Hepburn even owned a skirt. And Hepburn said, yes, she had one skirt, and she'd wear it to Barbara Walters' funeral. Now, um, seeing that Kate who died, I would have to say that Julia Roberts could have found a, a better story, since that was the only mention of Catherine Hepburn at the Oscars. Uh, she could have looked up something about Kate Hepburn's lifetime friend and collaborator, the actor Ruth Gordon. They were pals. Uh, or she could have um, looked up some of Kate's uh, biographical details, her bisexual identity, that sort of thing. Uh, something that would have a contemporary ring. Fact is that the Hollywood battles of the 1930s and 40s, those women, oh, you know, they had to fight so hard for so little. Seems a bit corny to us looking back now. Not to me, of course, but uh, I see much bigger battles on the horizon. Just when women seem to have won the right to be equal citizens, that is, uh, equal under the law, to have the full use of their creative powers, you know, to direct films as well as act in them, to be uh, prime movers. Uh, at that precise moment, both women and men do seem to be under threat of losing their humanity altogether. As I said before, this technocracy thing, uh, I'm finding it harder and harder to identify individuals in the entertainment industry. Uh, Britney Spears, yes, I turned it on for ten minutes, the Britney Spears concert. Uh, apparently she is a star because she makes more money than the other entertainers who look pretty much the same, well, more or less like her, kind of generic. Uh, I have trouble hearing some of the entertainers, the the voice itself. Uh, I could distinguish uh, the aching soprano of Joan Baez, the, uh, the actual uh, musician, you know. Uh, I was even startled by the poetry of Bob Dylan for decades, I, I remember trying to integrate it into my classes in English literature. <laughs> Got in trouble at first, of course. I know that new voices are out there somewhere in all this cacophony, in all this noise. There are new artists. Uh, uh, I'm just an old beatnik who needs to be hit over the head with a morally stunning piece of art, something I can identify, you know. I want to see Munch out there, um... I want to hear a thinker who says something that uh, brings me up short. Let's see. This year, I found nothing but, oh, a few theatrical offerings on HBO, believe it or not. 
asked me to give you my list. I don't know. Apparently, uh, only about one cable listener, one cable watcher in five has HBO television, but that's still millions of Americans, and I think of it as the new uh, theater. They can certainly use language and situations that we could only have on uh, on uh, Broadway or on stage up until now. Let's see, HBO, The Sopranos has lost its edge. That show tried to um, present our middle class, our American middle class, well, that family in New Jersey, as living the same life in criminal households as in ordinary upper management nuclear families. <laughs> they got that right. No difference at all. Moral ambiguities exist for every well-to-do family in our corporate society. My favorite is still Six Feet Under. That will begin a fourth season in June. Six Feet Under is the uh, show all about how we live over a funeral home. Only with death at our elbow can we appreciate existence, folks. Sex in the City lasted six years, and it did liberate a few folks. It tried to show women that the rocky road to romance is paved with painful revelations. True, so true, but that masochism is really a drag. Only when women can learn to laugh at themselves, to get over themselves, only then can they kick the masochism that blights their lives. Check for reruns of Sex in the City. There's a new uh, series called The L Word, which is all about lesbian loves. Not as funny. So far, it's just, uh, well, uh, titillating, tawdry, melodramatic, and kind of fascinating. Pam Greer is in it. Ozzie Davis, Jennifer Beale, Suzanne Arquette. Actually, give it time. It may just say something. The very latest is uh, called Deadwood, and I am hooked on just two episodes. Calamity Jane is portrayed in Deadwood as a real person. She's a mess. Now, uh, you remember Deadwood. That's the town in um, North Dakota. Wild Bill Hickok and those folks. Uh, Calamity Jane, she blubbers because some guy intimidates her. Uh, she's, um, well, she's violent and vulnerable. In real life, Calamity Jane was a child who suffered from protracted abuse. And uh, here we meet her as an adult, swaggering and rough, uh, as the persona demands. She's um, cute. She leaves the bar saying, I don't drink where I'm the only one with balls, that sort of thing. But actually, Calamity Jane made a living as a nurse and a stage driver. Uh, I'm happy enough to have a show which dispels the old image of Doris Day as a cutie pie, tough cookie. You know, the sort of character who only needs a dress to turn her into a real woman. Deadwood is pretty good history-wise. It almost succeeds in creating that world. They feed corpses to pigs. <laughs> you know, <laughs> God forbid we should have any evidence left. Yes, the whores are real enough. Um, they have diseases. The lady laps up laudanum. We mentioned the vapors there, yes. The the lawless Black Hills are a wonderful parable for the world in which we live today. 
I'm going to watch it faithfully because the villain is played by Ian McShane, reminding me of someone I was crazy about when I was 20. He's the owner of the saloon. A truly vicious murderer. Uh, he runs all the rackets in town. Deadwood would be impossible on network TV. I'm just grateful that cable television can give it a whack. Uh, and finally, folks, the good news is that the Monty Python uh, boys are going to re-release The Life of Brian uh, to counteract the work of Mel Gibson. The Life of Brian is probably the only extant comedy about the life of Christ. I'll be back on the air Thursday morning at 8.20. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. Out of Honor Fernando Suarez del Solar. Anti-war activist who courageously speaks out after his son was killed in Iraq. With Medea Benjamin, co-founder Global Exchange, Code Pink, Occupation Watch. At the monthly activist series. Friday, April 9th, 7 p.m. Berkeley Unitarian Fellowship Hall, 1924 Cedar. Accessible Benefit Global Exchange and UU Social Justice Committee. Information 415-927-1645. One, two, three, four. Y'all ready for this? Ladies and gentlemen. 94.1. What you see here is history. It's history. Never been done before.